Hi, this is the Zane Lowe Interviews on Apple Podcasts, and I'm Zane Lowe. Zane Lowe, Apple Music. This is a very special one for me. You know, how many times have we all tried to find words to describe Radiohead, to describe the incredible talent and ability that Tom York has to be able to take us there, to those places that even we as people sometimes are scared to go, those emotional places that we need to feel in order to reset the balance and find something new about ourselves, who can take us there? What artists can truly make music that can push us into a space unafraid to learn these lessons? Tom York is one of those people and has done it over and over again with his friends in the band Radiohead and of course as a solo artist as well when he emerged with his debut album The Eraser joining a very small selection of artists who are able to take electronic music, software and that binary algorithm and create something that is as deeply emotional as listening to Radiohead come together as five human beings with instruments. It's a very rare and unique gift that Tom York has and I've never had a chance until recently to sit down and talk to him one-on-one over a lengthy period of time and on camera as well. But that last point is irrelevant here because Zane Lowe series is a podcast series. So this is a chance for you wherever you are right here to turn your attention over to the remarkable Tom York and a conversation that I was so proud of. I actually went back and listened to it again start to finish, which trust me, I do not do. So I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I did. This right now, a rare and beautiful conversation with one of the greatest artists of our generation or any, Tom York. I did three shows at the Hollywood Bowl on No Sleep. I, went, I had this two-week period at the end of the tour where for some reason I just couldn't sleep. I can't remember anything about any of it. Yeah. I'm obsessed with this book about sleep. Have you heard of it? Why We Sleep? I've heard of it, but I haven't read it. Tell it's me. amazing. If you don't dream enough, you don't process enough, and in a dream state, the dream state, you develop your ideas. Scientists have had their best ideas. Musicians mm. have had their best ideas. You have two types of sleep. One is like a defragmentation mm-hmm. of your hard disk, mm-hmm. NREM, mm-hmm. and it's literally like a radar that beeps like when they scan it, mm. when you put the on MRI or something, mm. well, it's, it's just literally all brain activity ceases, right? Like that. And it goes in cycles. Then you have an REM period. And an REM period, um, there's more activity in the brain than there is during the day. If you don't have that, you don't develop, you don't process the stuff that's happening to you. It sticks. Yeah, and there's now, they think there might be links mm. to autism with, with children if they don't get in the right enough um, because one of the things you process is, your, is, your, the, is the ability to subtly understand people's language and mm, uh, mm. physical and all the signs that, you know, your ability to integrate mm. in society and to other human beings. Happens whilst you're not conscious or at least conscious in a yes, way. Yes, as, as, as a lot of other things that you process do. The best bit is I'm 50 and it says, this whole bit in the book that says, napping. Napping is completely legit. You must nap. It's totally good. Societies that still have the, the culture of, of siestas or napping, the health improvements, the mm. health benefits, the, you know, are, are undoubted. Why do we push ourselves to the degree where logic plays no role in health and well-being, do you think? Like just an amateur like idea because I, I still do this to myself and my wife will go, why are you doing this to yourself? Stop, take a break, whatever. And yet I'm still like, no, I'm compelled to just keep pushing. And I don't know why. I don't know where I learned to do that. Well, it's crazy. We're brought up with it, aren't we? I mean, the, the, the balance that this, this, like, 
sacrifice and the, and the sleep is the first thing to go, mm. you know, because we, we have so much to do in our day. But the, the, you get like diminishing returns. And this, that's what I find interesting is if you're an artist or a scientist or whatever, you spend a lot of your time trying to find solutions to problems. Mm. And you can't do that. You're, you're inhibiting your ability to make good judgments or good decisions mm. if you don't rest, if you don't relax, if you don't assimilate what you, the things you need to figure out. I used to come into these kind of conversations and I would be like mining for information, hopefully in a really nice way, but I'd be searching for ways to get things out that I don't even think some people want to tell me. I don't know why I did that. <clears throat> and I think it's your job, isn't it? It is my job, but we can do this in an empathetic state in a way that actually is a more of a trade between people, I think, rather than a sort of, I'll ask you questions and you'll answer them. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I just, I, I raised that because I think that for the longest time you rejected that. You were like, no, I don't have to answer that question. And mm. No, I don't like this trade. Mm. <laughs> and it felt like the trade didn't work for you for a long time. And I've kind of recognized that that's a, it's a weird trade. I think you go through this experience where I, I, the way I used to do it was like I was really honest. If someone asked me a question, I would answer honestly. Mm. But then I would read what people would write afterwards and go, well, no, that's, you, that's taken out of context. That's not what I meant. And, and you see yourself in print much as when you see yourself in the mirror first time naked and you go, ah! Yeah, terrifying. Awful. Um, and that just keeps going and going and going because you're forced to do more and more and more. So you're coming, trying to come up with a strategy of like, <laughs> well, um, I don't really want to see this bit of me naked, so I'm going to like avoid it. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't work either because they just buy it anyway. Once, like when I was in Germany in the late 90s, waking up, turning on whatever music channel it was, and there's Lou Reed destroying. <laughs> Destro- I mean, like, legendary behavior. Yeah, but, but I watched it, and when I watched what he was saying, and it's like, it's totally fair enough. Mm. He's like, they ask him some question, he's like, that's a stupid question. Mm. Next. Mm. But he's right. It was a stupid question. And it's our job to try and limit the amount of stupid questions what, as possible. But he could, it's Lou Reed. Hey, yeah, imagine yeah, what yeah. you could ask him. I know. And I'll be straight with you. Like, it's weird because I feel like I know you really well because of the influence you've had on me as an artist and a musician and the way that you've encouraged me to help shape my thinking and deal with my emotions through your music. So thank Crumbs, you. bloody hell. <laughs> thank really? you for that. No, but thank you. Oh, but I mean, I, you know, that's, that's part of the trade. The, the, I, mean, I guess there's two types of influence. There's the, there's the influence of, which is not really influence, is, is, is the, how people may emotionally connect with music I've been involved in. Mm. And that is something that um, part of me is completely mystified why that would be the case. Because human beings are really different. So why would it be that what I do connects in that way and the and the only answer I ever give to that was like I discovered maybe when Radiohead first started making records I discovered maybe around the bends that that, that the bit I didn't want to show the vulnerable bit um, the bit that would be on stage and be in these situations and just have to deal with it but didn't want to the bit that, that wanted to sing about my own feelings but was scared of what that would, that bit was the bit that mattered. Hmm. And you could put up a million defenses and different things, but that's what mattered and that's what people connected with. 
There is certainly when you discover that early on, and like I said, you haven't gotten to potentially as much of a rhythm as you might be in now where you're able to create music for yourself and understand that it means something to us. But in the beginning, realizing that the more transparent, the more honest and vulnerable I am, the more I pull that out of me and share it with people, the more it matters to people. That's quite a responsibility whether you acknowledge it or not. It can take you by surprise because you, when you're especially doing concerts and stuff, then that's, that's when you reconnect back with how people react to your music. Mm. When you're in an abstract space like your own studio, you don't have that. Yeah, thinking. You're not thinking about, no, not I'm thinking about me. Why aren't you thinking about me? I'm sorry. But I'm thinking about me. <laughs> because in those situations, like, I've ultimately, there's a sort of, like, a hit I have to get out of it. <laughs> I have to, you know, like, um, on this record, uh, just random example, um, trying to develop how Dawn Chorus, the song, was going to work. I'd like put her into my studio and try and find the right combinations of voicings on the synthesizers I was using. Couldn't find it, couldn't find it. Tried again and again and again and again and again and again and again. And again. But I was, I just needed that hit because I knew when I found it, when I found it, I'd, I would have my way into the song. Mm. And, and, and thus it was. So things like that matter to me and they are sort of obsessive or whatever, but they, they, there is an emotional connection I have to find just like everybody else does. Mm. When an artist is repeating themselves because they think that's what people want, they're fucked. It's all over. Mm. Okay. So that leads me to the second point I was going to make about the influence thing. Yes. All I have done with my compatriots in, in my band and then myself is uh, try and f create enough a space of safety around what we're doing creatively mm. to feel, carry on feeling free to experiment and be wherever we want to be. Um, aware all the time that it's fundamentally, fundamentally a business and you have to play games and you have to make compromises and all this stuff. And centrally, you've got to like, be prepared to torch it at any moment. <laughs> from right from the beginning to, to now. You, no you bluff. No bluff. There's never a bluff. No bluff. No. I'm doing, you know, I'm doing the Brexit thing. I've got a gun to my head. Like, mm. you're going to give me what I want, right? Mm. Of course, that's slightly different because they're not going to get what they want. Because mm. they've got nothing to trade. I've nothing, got something to trade. have got something to trade. <laughs> See? Thank you. No, we're back where we are. Yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned Dawn Chorus. And it's a, it's a good place to start. In fact, it's actually better than that. It's the perfect place to start because it's um, an album start to finish, which I love. And I, you know, I've always loved your solo albums, um, but this one to me is like a, is, is, a, is another level again for me. Um, and Dawn Chorus is, is such a beautiful moment on the record. And you talked about needing that hit, recognizing when you find it. What does it feel like? How do you react? Like I, straight up, too old to lie, floods of tears in the car first time I heard that, tapped into whatever else was going on in my life, personal stuff, yep. thought I had it all under control. That song comes on, forget about it. Absolutely. That's what Forget I'm about talking it. about. Forget about it. Right? <laughs> so what does it do to you? Same. When you... Yeah, same. Same. That's the f***ing point. On a, on a, on a mm. musical and sort of technical level, I was deliberately trying to find something as cold as possible to mm. go with it. Like, I sing essentially one note mm. all yeah, the way yeah, through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just fucking one down. note, man. I know. Um, and, and <laughs> Nuts. And the chords just go round and round and round. There's nothing happening oh, but it's so other than the words. There's so, nothing happening. Yeah, but that's the brutality of it in the best possible way. 
it was sometimes I can do this not very often sometimes I can just sit down and the stream of consciousness from one end to the other tells me what I want to say mm. before I've had time to actually say I want to say this mm. so it just came out one of my favorite musical experiences recently is um, going on the last Radiohead tour where we had three nights at Madison Square Garden and we to 75 to 80 percent of each set was different every night mm. which was just amazing because like every night um i'm going th through memories and we're sort of connecting with songs in a different way and there's no sense of like everything's by the seat of your pants because you're just trying to remember what yeah because the, the context is totally different as well the context of where they sit in other songs too because yes exactly. it's not like you sp stop one emotional experience put the guitar down start another no, emotional experience yeah. all and sometimes it doesn't work so you're a bit sort of like oh, well, that doesn't work. we won't do that again yeah. um but you know you, you yes you, it's hit and miss and it's like but you you and the audience are both sort of experiencing quite a lot of similar things it's kind of cool. It seemed like you were having one of the best tours ever. I was really enjoying. Well, we all were because we, you know, we could all hear each other. We were all sort of just open to how each other was playing, and there was a sort of joy, sort of celebration to it, which I really didn't expect. So it was really cool. When I was watching Tomorrow's Modern Boxes live show, I realised that the way that you were putting that all together live yeah. sounded like you were making another album. Yeah. And it, to me, it felt like maybe making these albums is more a reflection of the live show yes, or getting to that spontaneity. It's totally that. Yeah. I mean, um, not all of it, but most of it was developed from the live show or in the spirit of the, the our sort of method. Mm. And the method was extremely random, but it started by like um, taking old stuff, just cutting it up, a bit like a you know, DJ, PA mm. thing, mm. like mm. other people do. Mm. And trying to sort of, which for me is really difficult, counterintuitive, like, well, I don't have an instrument, I'm not playing, uh, mm. okay, mm. all right. But then it sort of developed and got into it, got into the sort of drama of it, or whatever you want to call it. So that's how it happened. And Nigel was basically sifting through my ideas and collaging them together. And we'd have a loose idea to begin with, but not much. And I mean, there was in the early days of developing these shows. I was going on without the lyrics and making it up on the spot, and then listening back. Because <laughs> because um, I could never understand when I heard the Eraser right when I, first time I heard that record, and I think I said to I'm sure I said multiple times to people to the point of annoying them, where I was like, "This is how you sort of use electronic instruments to capture some real emotional resonance." And I'm not talking about cerebrally, like like I said, driving home crying emotion. Like that's tough. And there weren't a lot of projects or a lot of artists out there that, who were like diving into this kind of what was considered at the time abstract electronic landscape and creating emotion out of it. And in my mind, I just automatically assumed that it was by design. Mm. And I, I really realized now in the last 24 hours that it was actually out of the desire to get yourself into a place where you were as surprised as anybody else. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. spontaneity. When I'm rooting around ideas and stuff, I don't really, it's like a child playing with Lego. I'm just making stuff. Yeah, it fits. We'll see what it made later. Yeah. Um, and then I put it all in a little, you know, I lay it all on the counter for display um, and see which ones he likes, you know, and then we focus in on that. And, and then because someone else has some sort of reaction to it, I have a reaction to it. So I, sit, so I go through this weird process um, where you make stuff and you, then you forget it and then someone picks it up and shows you again. You go, oh, that's, oh, there's that in it. And um, um but it's not too dissimilar to what I've done 
with Radiohead in a way where I will, I used to at least um, play a bunch of chords, mumble over the top, send them around to the guys, and then they they find things in them and say, that's good, mm. that's good, can we work on that? And that only at that point do I feel I have then permission to connect with it in a different way. It's like, then I can like pick up the mic because someone else has got the, 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 the music around it in its most basic form. I think most artists, if they're honest, are never solo artists. You know, Nigel and you have built such an incredibly strong, creative environment for, you, for each other, obviously, to trust each other. And when did you realize you trusted him enough to, to value his opinion like that? Was it immediately? Kid A. Kid A. OK Computer was like, still, like, I'm not sure about this guy. <laughs> he tells me this story of like how I'd stand over him when I was trying to mix airbag. And I'm like, it just sounds like shit, mate. <laughs> sounds like You've killed all the dynamics. <laughs> I might have actually been right, but that wasn't the point. When it got to sort of Kiday and uh, we had like our own studio and I was actually watching him take this chaos that we were giving him and trying to turn it into something, I was like, all right, mm. I trust you. There are a lot of really great relationships in, the, in, the, in, in you know, history, creative relationships that exist for a period. And then someone decides, I want to like go try something else over here, totally within mm -hmm. their right to do that. You've been, you and Nigel have remained steadfastly collaborative with each other and, you know. Yeah, except, I mean, my, um, my only sleeping around has been um, on Suspiria. Yeah. Where, um, because the nature of what it, was, what it was and the horror film and blah, blah, blah. I mean, I just knew he wouldn't have the patience to sit around <laughs> watching me, like, indulge in my mm, effects without any songs and structures. But you also said that you felt really challenged by that opportunity. Yeah, it was great. And, and, yeah. and you said something brilliant recently that where you felt that feeling that you get where you dread the idea of doing it, but if you don't do it, you regret it. Yeah, that's how I make most of my decisions. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and to be fair though, uh, I got to a point where, and then I called Sam, uh, who I produced it with. Uh, you know, he arrives and spends weeks going through my chaos, trying to find missing files, and I just got to this point where, I'm like, all right, it's a fair cut. Wow! It? So you went down the rabbit hole. You were not cataloging and compiling and maintaining I don't know what it. Anything was, and what was going on, and the, and the film people had started asking me for files. I'm like, ah, shit. <laughs> oh. Shit. And for those people who are watching or listening to this right now, not to break the wall, I apologize, but uh, film people are brutal even compared to music people. Like, there's real money in film. Yeah. And real money and, and real and pressure. composers, I did this talk in LA, and I talked to all these other composers, music, um, film composers, and there everyone is like, yeah, we're bottom of the line. Yeah. <laughs> I'd had a lot of prelim on that with, with Johnny, though. So, mm. And Johnny has, like, coping strategies. and um, what, Like what? Can you share one? Like how uh, you, just, you just do a lot up front and you... And, and, I mean, he's lucky as well because mostly he works with Paul and Paul gets mm. it anyway. But uh, he said, lay a lot of stuff out yourself, do a lot of stuff yourself, and if they don't like it, walk away, don't worry about it, move on. Um, he, he really helped. I mean, it really helped just watching him go through that mill and understanding, okay, this is what I'm getting into. Yeah. Otherwise, it would have been a very nasty shot. Amazing job, though. I, I'm really proud of Oh, you should be. It's incredible. It. And it's one, of those, it's one of those things that could have easily, even with you attached to it, I mean, the movie's incredible, but you, you could have easily, it could have easily been one of those sort of critically acclaimed, few people like it, it is what it is, move on to it. You know, go, mate, Radiohead, mate, where you go. Yeah. But people, loved, go, mate. <laughs> people loved it. And people talk about it. I was it. really surprised, yeah. Because, I mean, it was... It's, Difficult record. Luca, the director, Luca Gandino, pushed me into a place I would have never gone and made me do a bunch of stuff that I've never dreamed of doing. And that was great. 
like such a cool feeling, like um, the central dance piece um, in the in the middle of the film. Mm. I smashed my head against the wall for months on that mm. till I got this breakthrough, and then it was just, you know, I, I, I knew what I was looking for, but I just couldn't, couldn't find, find it. it. I didn't have any choice. I had to see this through. At what point did the this album start to take shape, Anima? When did you start to realize you had something that was going to be a I mean, we have, it was, it's, it's not the usual way because it's been like really frustrating. We, we've had most of this stuff for ages and we just couldn't get a slot in order to finish it. Mm. We couldn't get the right mindset. It was like, okay, we need, we need to set aside two months and we're just going to do this. Um, and the joke was it was really quick to do. I mean, we set up as we do the shows live for most of it and like knocked it out. It was mm. really fun. It was quick and easy and we knew where we we're going because we'd lived with it for so long. Mm. You mentioned recently though that you went through a bout of writer's block. That was around the time of Suspiria though. I mean there's mm. an irony in that mm. because Suspiria was my writer's block. <laughs> uh, so if that's my writer's block I'm gonna write. Are you smug? I mean it was ideal to be like the therapy of like I don't want to write a bunch of songs um, you know I want to just make noise it was was great and I, I found myself immersing myself on all music concrete and all this like anti-music mm. mm. and it was great <laughs> i loved it writer's block i always felt must feel like hell when your instinct is to create and to release and to find emotion in things but then i also think that there must be a part of it sometimes when where it's a relief because yeah, like i don't actually have to write anything right now that, that that's kind of the point you take the pressure off yourself yeah every artist and musician will go through a period where you have to think again about what you're doing. You have to stop because you have to walk out the door and you have to see again. Have you had it before? Have you had Yes, yes. The biggest one was like after OK Computer. I'd gone through a period of, of playing the same songs for years, you know, and, and finding myself in increasingly large venues and not feeling mentally able to fill them for everybody. Mm. So in fact, just shrinking <laughs> mentally and physically. Yeah, I always remember that time <coughs> watching as a fan that time and seeing the movie and all that stuff that was going on and thinking that the, the prevailing takeaway from that for me was that you had been writing from outside the room, mm. that you found yourself inside the room, and now everyone inside the room's like, How's it feel to be inside the room? Yeah. And, and you're like, like this far away from and you're looking like, at you. I was writing about it because I'm actually supposed to be outside the room. Yeah, it was that, but it was also yes, a massive upheaval of everything. The the the, the fight to be seen and recognised was like okay, I don't have to do that anymore. When did you start to focus on? more specific things that matter to you and should matter to all of us in your writing and in your music. Hmm. That's bullshit. And these guys are f***ing crooks. And this thing needs to be fixed. Politics. Yeah. That was starting to happen in Kidei. I didn't really feel I had a choice. Go, go back to that thing of like, you know, I can't not do it, I'll regret it. I do remember having a phone call with Johnny, like, this always sticks in my mind. When, when I was proposing to call the record Hail to the Thief, and he said, that's too much, man. It's mm. too much. Maybe he was right, actually. He was taking it too far. I wasn't really necessarily talking about that particular thief. By the way, have you seen Vice? We, the movie, the amazing. Oh, dude. Me and my son watched it last night going, I oh. can't believe they made this film. It must be kind of weird because when you were coming out saying all this stuff, 
there was a sort of aura around you of like, ah, yeah, it's him again. He's ah. fucking paranoid. Ah. Like, ah, oh, he's a conspiracist. <laughs> oh, he's fucking crazy. That's all I ever got. I know, but now it's not a happy thing it's to admit. But but you've been saying this along with 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 people for a long, long time, and now we find ourselves in a situation where this new album, Animo, is very much saying, what? Like, when are you guys? When are we going to actually? When is this going to change? I think the reason it ended up being called Anima was partly because I'm obsessed with this whole dream thing and it comes from this um, concept that Jung had. Yeah. Um, but also, like this guy, Jaron Lanier, you know this guy? No. Oh, he's um, uh, he was involved in the internet. He's a great thinker in the internet. And he said, we have started to emulate what our devices say about us and, and emulate the way we behave from that. So I had, I had this whole thing where like the reason we can watch Boris Johnson lie through his teeth, promise something that we know will never happen, is because we, we don't have to connect with it it's directly. It's not real Because it's degree. a little avatar, it's yeah. this little guy with a stupid haircut waving a flag. That's all right, that's funny. And the, the consequences are not real. The consequences of everything we do are not real. We can remain anonymous. We send our avatar out to hurl abuse and, and poison um, and then trot back anonymous. The difference between now and me being the barky, annoying dog <laughs> doing how to the thief and erasers and stuff and, uh, is, is, oh, there's no consequence now. So there's no, there's no, it doesn't matter. It's like a volume of, of traffic, of, of noise, of just... And yet the consequences are very real. Yeah, the consequences are still real, but we, real. We, don't, yeah. we don't see that because, again, we're not connected with those in the same way. It's very true. I'm 45 now, I've got two kids who are growing up and they're pretty woke. And they are like, we don't really like this. No, we're not and happy about we're this. We're not happy about this. And, and it's yet, your fault. Yeah. Ah, I get the same. Yeah. We were supposed to be the generation that learned from the previous generation because we said that about our parents. Having kids made a massive difference to me then. Mm. That sort of made me more angry and more panicked. Mm. You know, one of the things that I really feel, um, and I've, I spoke to you know, someone yesterday about this and I was saying that the Extinction Rebellion has been a really great thing. It's having a difference in, in the sense that the, the one thing when I, since I've been involved doing stuff with Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth over the years is the one thing, it was very hard to get people angry. They get worried, mm. and they said, "But what we can do? Oh, I can do some recycling, or I can do." But there wasn't this this thing that now has woken, where uh, people have come to terms with the ideas. Like the only way that things change is, is to fundamental mm. structural change, and mm. the only way that can happen when you have a bunch of clowns is to be angry, um, and there's a power to. A coherent form of anger like when there were there was a thousand people arrested in London over the course of however long it was mm. that's that's proper action I hope that makes a difference but right now you know we have this performance going on we have a uh, Punch and Judy show in America another one in Britain that, that apparently that's what goes for politics these days this is their last ditch attempt Cock Brothers etc etc this is all they got okay now we've got to put monkeys in charge Get them to wave around a lot yeah. because that's all they've got left. Yeah. And when it breaks, the likes of Ocasio-Cortez will yeah. walk in and go, right, should we get started?
Yeah. That's what I think. Yeah. And I love the fact that there's an optimism there because that's one of the things I think people have often overlooked in your music and when they've talked about you on a general level is that it's all woe and woe is me. But actually no, there's, a, there's always been a lot of optimism wrapped up in your songs. A sense of like, don't think that the fight doesn't lead to optimism, doesn't lead to a brighter future. Always. Uh, my cliche thing I always say is like, you know you're in trouble when people stop listening to sad music. Yeah. Because the moment that people stop listening to sad music, they don't want to know anymore. We're emotionally redundant. They're turning themselves off. So this album obviously will kind of piggyback in off the back of the touring of Tomorrow's Modern Boxes and will you just kind of si. continue? The si business will continue. As just it continue is. as it is. Do not worry about a thing. Probably. Probably. And then I'll get bored and then we'll move on. <laughs> From my perspective, I think it's super interesting to watch you get thrust into this reflective mode because you've never been a reflective person and now it's like, hey, 20th anniversary here, 20th oh, that, anniversary that, yeah. there. No, I'm, I'm like, down with that shit. Weirdly down with that shit. Um, Kid A Amnesiac. 20 years coming up, and me and Stanley and Nigel as well, we've all been rooting through stuff because that's what we do. And um, a lot of stuff. Oh my God. <laughs> uh, I mean, we, yeah, we have, amazingly for us, we had the foresight to put most of it on disc and not lose it. Yeah. And um, 20 years ago, what does the disc look like? A little floppy disc? Literally. Psyquest like drives. <laughs> <laughs> And we used to fax each other all the time. I've got like all the faxes, all these stupid, mad. What's, come on, tell us one fax. What, what's one you discovered that made you laugh? <sighs> it was always just conversations about like, oh, we'd have to discuss a t-shirt or we'd have to discuss a decision. But it would like, that part would be like one line and the rest of it is just, by the way, f Tony Blair or, and then a big drawing of Alistair Campbell or, you know, just what the hell were we on? We, we you know, we were in the studio for, uh, I don't know, a year, more than a year. It was the first time I'd had a space with Stanley to, to, to work. And it's the first time Stanley had a, a space to paint. Mm. We had two studios running most of the time. Uh, it, it, when I look at it now, I see it all and think, okay, now here's a bunch of people who've had the kind of success they never imagined in their lives. So they completely overcompensate by recording, dictating everything, recording every mistake, doing everything a million times, going round and round and round and round and round and round, and generating so much work. Mm. And it all sounds like that. No. <laughs> I remember the first time I got Kid A, because, oh my God, if you can even remember the anticipation, I don't know if anybody in the room even remembers, but I remember when that album came out and it was like, finally it exists. Like, and I got we were it, thinking the same thing. And, yeah, and it came it came on a mini disc player. Didn't we Nick, did we glue it? You glued yeah, the glued. headphones into <laughs> the mini jack. <laughs> it was so rudimentary. It's yeah. it just like, oh, just glue it, that'll be fine. No one will leak yeah. that. And um I didn't listen to I didn't get past song one because I was just like so in love with that moment. Mm. And you've been so faithful to to that song and songs off that album. And I wonder. We, and I always wonder this with musicians, when you write something like Everything in its Right Place and you think back on where you were when you wrote that and now you're reflecting on it 20 years on, what that song means to you and how you feel about a song like that. I always really, really enjoy it because the music, because the, the pattern, the nature of the, the melodic pattern means you can't really go wrong. I mean, it doesn't matter how badly you play it, it's going to work. <laughs> Do you remember recording that? Do you have a distinct memory? I remember trying to record it lots of different ways and then eventually 
eventually, I think Nigel suggesting go and go and try and record it on the the, the prophet on the synth, mm. and it just happened really really quickly. Uh, so much so that I literally only remember adjusting the filter or something on one of the sound and trying some words out while he was recording it. And I'm literally reading off a sheet. And he says, yeah, that's it. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm just reading off the sheet. I'm trying to work it out. Like, no, that's it. that's it. We're done. Oh, he recorded that tape? Yeah, and then, and then Johnny walks in and says, I'm going to try this. And he's, he, he discovered on, on the Pro Tools or on the recording software that you could scroll back and forward. Oh, I always thought that was done on the Chaos Pad. He did that. that no, but originally it was on Pro Tools. And right. he just did a load of those and then edited it like a little symphony. And I was like standing there going... And it all happened like in two days. And then we added a load of other stuff that didn't work. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, yeah. I'm not surprised because it's like, it, it's like the ingredients are essential. But it, it makes sense because if you, you can't think that piece of music through. That's the point. And in a way, that probably, I don't know whether consciously or subconsciously led you to a place where Eraser was made and now you're able to kind of trust that spontaneous experience because you can't cerebrally create that. Uh, you, you, what you, what you trust... Um, and what's nice about still being a creative person is you, you, what you trust is like you can have an idea and you can really feel something for it, but not know where it's going to end up. Yeah. And yeah. So you, but not freak out when you don't know. Because in fact, the, the, the most exciting thing is getting to a certain point with something and then leaving it or presenting it to someone else, hitting a brick wall and knowing because you've hit that brick wall, it's not finished, you're gonna to go to somewhere that you've not expected. First time I met you in Auckland, I would ask you a question and you would go, <laughs> and I'd be thinking, is he falling asleep? Is he not <laughs> And then I would finish the question and you'd go, well, what's interesting about that is, and you would come alive again. And then I would ask a question, you'd go back into this kind of like sleep mode and then you'd come alive again, it was amazing. You came up to me afterwards and we were in the back bar, um, uh, after the show, and you said, uh, I think I'm done. What? And I said, what, what do you mean? mean? And he went, I think I might just like sack all this off and go to Hawaii. Oh, yeah, here. man. Yeah, that was me then. And I was like, and I would never forget it because we'd all had a drink. And I said, I really don't think you should do that. <laughs> <laughs> I had exactly the same conversation live on stage when, when we played Glastonbury in 97. Yeah, I just <laughs> went over to Ed and tapped him on the shoulder and said, I'm, uh, I'm off. I'll see you later. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, okay, well, you can go, but I think you probably regret it. So let's, you know, let's give it another on half hour. On stage. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Um, so it does make sense that you sort of take yourself to this place where it's almost over. It almost can't be done. And then that's where you push yourself into your best work. Yeah, as long as... I've learned to do that in a non-destructive manner now. Yes. Yes. Does ambition ever play a part in your life? That's a question. Do you think about things in that regard? Like, I have an ambition to do something. What does that term mean to you? Or is it just kind of like a survival through creation type scenario? No. Mm. Um, mm. Not what? ambitious. Not amb ambitious. Ambitious to carry on uh, doing good shit. That's all really. That's, that's it. That's all I got. Yeah. That's all I need. Have you ever sort of gotten into a room with a simple arrangement and a simple set of instruments <laughs> and made something that is in more of a 
songwriter-based environment scenario rather than, because you, you're really pushing the electronic. I, I, um, and in the process of doing that. Where's your Rick Rubin album, mate, is what I'm yeah, really asking no. you. <laughs> um, no, I'm in the process of going back there, right? I mean, you know, I, in, I indulge heavily in my electronics and I thoroughly enjoy it. And mm. it's actually got to the point where I, in my studio, it's just all electronics and there's a sense of relief going to sit in front of a guitar or piano yeah. now. Where you're at in your life right now, the, the prioritization of things, the balance of life. Are you having a good time? Because career-wise, you're in the best place <clears> you've ever <throat> been, probably. Really? Do, do well, I do hope so. Well, do whatever you want. No, yes, you're in no restrictions true. anymore, and people flock to see you, and financially great, and all that stuff, la la la, bish bosh done. I just find myself very, very busy which I really like. I think I did go through a period where I wasn't able to do that much and now I'm really enjoying the fact that stuff's coming out again and uh, you know and and doing concerts again and the balance for me is just um still still uh enjoying it which I do probably enjoying it more than if you'd talked to me 20 15 years ago mm. probably not so much but I hope it's still as interesting as the stuff I was doing then. That's, that's really all I care about. Life balance is, to me is about um, what we started talking about at the beginning, like rest. Mm. Staying outside of things as much as possible. One of the things I can quite often forget, which I used to be more acutely aware of, is, is um, I've had a very unusual life and I'm extremely lucky to basically be an observer of things when other people are in the middle of them, outside the room, not inside the room. Mm. That's been given to me as a, a gift. And I sound, that sounds really, blah. but I don't mean it like that because when I was a kid, uh, the, 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 the way I saw, the way I dealt, the way I processed things that happened to me was, was through work, through, through music um, through writing and whatever like, that was the the way I, I, I could see I see it with my kids they're both like that too I'm so happy in a way thank you that um, that is still able to happen because uh, it means uh, I'm still alive There it is, uh, my first real opportunity to dive into conversation long form with Tom York and a beautiful time to do that as well with a lot to untangle. And of course, all of Radiohead and Tom York's music across multiple projects, solo and group are all on Apple Music right now and there's so much to dive into. Uh, if you're listening to this interview, you've probably already gone deep. But if you stumbled across it and you're just interested to hear the man speak before you hear him create, then uh, you need to go and do that right now. We'll be back with another brand new conversation very soon right here on the Zane Lowe series. Subscribe and don't think about it. Stay well. <laughs>